Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Rob Henderson. Rob Henderson is an Air Force veteran, an alumni of Yale and Cambridge, an essayist, and the author of Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. During our conversation, Rob talks about his early life, his experience in the American foster care system, and his unlikely journey out of the unstable and chaotic environment of his youth. Rob is one of my favorite thinkers, and it's damn near miraculous that this brilliant and prolific writer comes from the upbringing that he details in the book. Rob's memoir gives voice to a human experience that is largely invisible and unknown to the American credentialed class. Abandonment by one's biological parents, an unstable home life with uncaring guardians, rampant drug abuse and early childhood violence, and a general environment of nihilism that pervades the formative years of life. Rob's arc gives him a unique perspective into American social class, what really matters in the development of children, and what our society should prioritize for childhood and adult well-being. Rob notes in the book that, quote, in the U.S., 60% of boys in foster care are later incarcerated, while only 3% graduated from college. We are all fortunate that Rob is one of the lucky ones to escape the crucible of his upbringing and to give testimony to the lived, troubled experiences of the voiceless millions who have had similar lives right under our noses. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rob Henderson. Rob Henderson, I have been looking forward to this one, man. Um, I'm really honored that you would do this and give me the time to uh, talk about this amazing forthcoming book. Welcome to the show. It's great to great to have you on. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. I thought, and I mentioned this before we uh, kick this off, that uh, I finished your book last night. It gives a window into a world that, frankly, I think most of America never really gets a chance to delve into. Uh, and I thought maybe we would kick the conversation off by having me ask you how this book even came came about in the first place. How do you make sense of how the book even was something that you would consider writing and ended up actually creating yourself? Huh. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that question. You know, I was, it's funny, I was speaking with a, with a British professor the other day and, and he'd, he'd gotten wind that I was writing this book. It was coming out soon. And, uh, you know, we, we made a couple of jokes together about how, you know, I'm probably too young to be writing a mm. memoir, but he, had, but then, you know, he's, you know, he's a British professor. He was like, you know, it's, it's an American tradition. <laughs> he was like, you know, Americans, he's like, you, you know, this is like, it, it was, you know, tongue in cheek, but there is something to that, that, um, you know, whenever you hear someone in their, you know, late twenties or early thirties writing a memoir, it's, you know, probably, probably an American. So yeah, <laughs> we do like that somehow. Um, but how did it, how did it come into, you know, I, I figured at, at some point, especially like around the period where I entered college, when I got to Yale, at some point, once I realized just how anomalous my trajectory was, I figured, you know, someday, maybe I'll write a book, maybe I'll write an autobiography or a memoir of some kind, but I figured it would be, you know, decades down the road. Um, but then sort of forces conspired and aligned in a certain way. And I received this offer. And so I went for it. So Let's see. How should I tell this? I mean, you know, we can we can sort of tell different parts of the the story, but at least the way that the book came into existence. Um, 
when I started uh, writing my my college applications, uh, this was 2015. Um, I saw this um, this advertisement uh, on it was actually on Facebook. I was scrolling my Facebook feed in 2015, and I saw this this link in the New York Times saying, you know, a call for uh, like interesting uh, college application essays about money and social class. And I submitted my college application thing, you know, to, to this thing, thinking like, oh, this might be interesting if they ran it. Maybe if they ran it, it would increase my odds of getting into a decent college. And so I submitted it and they ended up running it. And so then fast forward uh, two years later, um, I did manage to get into Yale and I went to this writing seminar at Columbia. It's called the War Horse Writing Seminar Program, I think. Um, it's a one week writing seminar for military veterans specifically, uh, at the campus at Columbia. Um, and while I was there, one of the guest speakers at this writing seminar was, uh, was Jim Dow, who was then the op-ed editor at the New York times. And so I introduced myself to him and, uh, said something like, you know, Hey, you know, I, I, I want, I, you know, one of my essays was, uh, selected for this contest thing a few years ago. And he was like, you know, I think I read that. He was like, you know, I like that. If you, if you ever want to write anything else, let me know. And, um, when I was at that seminar, I had been writing this personal essay for a while. And, um, you know, I sent it to him, you know, some, some weeks later, I think, and uh, he wrote back right away saying he really liked it. And then they ended up running this op-ed in the New York Times. This was 2018, the day I graduated from college. And it got more attention than I expected. And then a literary agent contacted me saying, hey, do you want to expand on this and write a book? And, um, you know, I thought like, you know, I'm about to enter grad school. I have, you know, I'm sort of living in the world of sort of writing and thinking in the world of ideas. I'm on a university. It, you know, it may, may be difficult to you know, do a PhD and write a book at the same time. But, you know, I was feeling ambitious and I was feeling, um, you know, like I could I could do this. So I went ahead and agreed to it. Took a while to get a book deal from there. You know, my my literary. So this is like not usually how it goes. Usually authors, you know, they spend years and so difficult to get a literary agent. This was another reason why I decided to go ahead with it, because I, I thought maybe I'd never get another chance like this again. So the agent and I put a proposal together, took about two years to finally get a publisher interested, um, you know, because I was still a relatively unknown person. I didn't have much of a social media footprint or anything. Um, but by 2020, um, I had a little bit of sort of an online following and I had written some other essays since then. We signed a deal with uh, Gallery Books, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. And uh, yeah, that sort of, you know, what came together from there was, you know, it's weird, like, I needed both things at the same time. I sort of needed an online following and I needed the sort of what uh, uh, I needed to still go through this sort of gatekeeping mechanism of, you know, getting a, an op-ed placed in the right kind of newspaper. And it's just getting harder, man. It's like harder and harder to get a book deal, harder to get publishers interested. It's And then, you know, that was early 2020. Um, you know, I've seen these articles since then of, you know, if you're just a regular person, uh, especially if you don't hit certain identity markers, um, you know, it's next to impossible now to get a book deal uh, from a, a traditional publisher now, especially from one of the sort of big publishers. So in a way, I got lucky. Um, well, I, you know, I, I do. I admit I feel like I got I got very lucky, um, but the timing was in my favor and things just sort of worked out. It's weird. You know, the first whatever, 20 some years of my life were extremely kind of unlucky. Mm. And then. Mm. Since then, things that luck has been sort of working in my favor ever since then. So, 
um, that's the that's basically the story of how the book came into existence. And then I've just been working on it ever since. You know, it's been sort of five years in the making writing this book. Mm. I'm one of those people who has been following your work for a number of years, and I'm a, a huge fan of of your writing. And one of the thoughts I kept having as I was reading your book was, I can't believe this is where you come from. Um, you know, the you mentioned this in the book, I believe that if not for a few fortunate events in your life, this book never would have been made and you would probably be dead or in jail. As a lot of your friends, yeah. you know, you write about it, are are currently or have been. And I wonder if we can maybe to continue the beginning of the conversation, go back to your early life, because, you know, your first 18 years or so before you enter the U.S. Air Force are unlike almost anyone I've ever met. And Hmm. I felt like when I was reading this book that I was getting a better understanding of what life is like for the voiceless millions of people in this country and around the world who live in the kind of instability that you grew up in. And I don't know where you want to start with that, but maybe at the beginning where, you know, around when you have your first memories of what life was like when you were a young boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, like before I, before I entered college, I think I'd mentioned this, that my, I didn't realize just how unusual my my life was because the people I grew up around that you know my life wasn't that different from theirs. We all sort of had this um, immersion and squalor and dysfunction and stability. I mean, there was a you know material deprivation. It was sort of you know I I grew up sort of relatively poor, but it was like kind of working class. There were sort of periods in my childhood where maybe we reached like sort of the threshold of lower middle class, but you know, it was like, we were poor, we were kind of broke, but it wasn't like, I never went like hungry. It was just, it was just, it was something else. There was, there was, you know, which is a point that I make in the book is that the sort of instability was worse than the poverty. Um, So yeah, just backing way up, I was born in LA um, and I never met my father um, and my mother, she was uh, an immigrant from, from Seoul, from South Korea. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I learned anything about my father. Uh, my mother didn't even know who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a, a DNA test. This was actually, you know, pretty recently. And, uh, it was, it was, you know, kind of a surprise. My, my father was actually Hispanic. He was most likely Mexican, you know, based on sort of the, the, the DNA results that I received. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, my mom was just, you know, heavily addicted to drugs. We were sort of moving into, you know, we were, we were homeless for a while. We lived in a car. Um, then we moved into a slum apartment, uh, in a kind of rundown in part of LA and Westlake. And, uh, yeah, you know, I got these documents later from a, a forensic psychologist. I had this file that my adoptive mother later gave me and, you know, sort of reading through it. And a forensic psychologist was sort of documenting my mother's deteriorating condition, my, my birth mother. And, you know, she was doing drugs. She was having people sort of come in and out of the apartment at all hours. And yeah, uh, one day, you know, some neighbors called the police because they heard me screaming, my mother would do drugs. She would tie me to this chair in another room so I wouldn't disturb her. And yeah, then the police showed up. Um, uh, they arrested her. My That was my earliest memory was seeing her arrested. And yeah, I was placed into the, the LA foster care system when I was three and spent the next few years just bouncing around 
seven different foster homes. And then I was sort of adopted and sort of, you know, different, different kinds of family configurations after that. But uh, in LA, it was seven different, different foster families. And yeah, it was just um, that was that the first chapter of the book that was maybe the hardest to write. I mean, there were a lot of hard Mm. chapters in the book to write, but that was really tough for a lot of reasons. But one was just sort of remembering, you know, just what it was like to be a little kid again before you had sophisticated thoughts before you had any sort of it was almost all just sort of emotion and intuition and feeling right like you're sort of your brain isn't fully developed you're not really sort of thinking clearly or or logically it's just sort of this is happening to you then this is happening to you and you sort of have these wisps and fleeting relationships and people coming and going and so yeah it was really um yeah pretty challenging to sort of recapture those feelings and um yeah a lot of the a lot of the documents uh, that i mentioned before from um, that my adoptive mother had given me just sort of the, the case file from my social workers, those sort of helped to fill in some of the gaps and sparked some unexpected memories. And yeah, so that was, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a point that I wanted to make in the book, the sort of issue of instability versus poverty, because you know, foster homes, they're, you know, they're like, you know, very few of them are, are like, you know, extremely well off. But you have to qualify, you have to sort of meet a minimal level of financial stability in order to qualify as a foster parent. And then the state supplies a certain stipend. It isn't a lot of money, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's something. So they give, they give money to these families to help care for the kids. So materially, it wasn't that bad, um, but it was the uncertainty in everyday life. And later, um, you know, I got a PhD and sort of read studies and sort of learned more about the uh, the sort of uh, research and, and the psychology of all of this, that actually research suggests that instability is a far stronger predictor of harmful and risky behaviors later than poverty is. So uh, essentially being poor doesn't have the same effect on future behavior as living in chaos. So uh, essentially, research has found that uh, even among sort of middle or upper middle class families, if there's a lot of sort of disorder and divorce and remarriages and separations and just sort of day-to-day uncertainty in a young child's life, um, they're much more likely to go on to uh, get involved in crime or uh, become addicted to substances or uh, commit self-harm or hurt others compared to living in a materially impoverished environment, but is still um, uh, the family is stable and the child sort of has a predictable routine and a schedule and attentive parents. And I get that those two things are connected, that poverty and instability, there is a correlation there, but it's far from perfect. Um, I think a lot of people uh, know sort of affluent families that are still kind of a mess and have <laughs> kids who are struggling and uh, aren't necessarily great people because of their early life experiences. Uh, and and many people uh, also know uh, sort of poor families or immigrant families or families that are struggling, but still manage to sort of supply the care and attention for the kids, even if they don't have a lot in the way of uh, financial resources. And so it's really the instability factor that I wanted to highlight. And so you know, just as one example of this, um, you know, I looked into the college graduation rates for kids in different kinds of environments. And so 
the overall U.S. college graduation rate, something like 35% of Mm. Americans go on to get college degrees. It's around 35%. And for kids born into the bottom socioeconomic quintile, so the bottom 20%, 11% of them graduate from college compared to 35% overall. So that's you know, that's low. It's, um, you know, it suggests that being poor uh, can create obstacles to college graduation rates. But then if you look at the college graduation rates for foster kids, it's only 3%. Only 3% mm-hmm. of kids who spend time in foster care go on to graduate from college. So in other words, in the US, a kid who's born into a poor family is three, it's basically a kid born into a poor family in the US is four times more likely to graduate from college than a kid who spends time in foster care. And I point out elsewhere that, um, and this is in later in later chapters in the book, that you know, research indicates that the best predictor of being on any kind of psychiatric medication is being a foster kid. Mm-hmm. It's a stronger predictor than family history or genetics. Uh, in some states, something like two-thirds of kids in foster care are on some kind of medication. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of this suggests that it's that sort of instability, the uncertainty, um, and it's not just the personal uncertainty. One thing that I, I I describe in the early chapters when I'm describing my experiences in foster care is, you know, of course, I didn't know where I was going to be uh, from one week to the next. But then, you know, I'd I'd befriend or grow close with my foster siblings, and then they would be taken, and then they would be replaced with some other kid. And so it wasn't just where am I going to be, but it's where my foster sibling is going to be, who's going to be around me tomorrow. And, you know, when you're five, six, seven years old, you know, the sort of formative critical period of childhood, that is extremely um, debilitating and can affect your sort of emotional configuration, the way that you treat relationships, the way you think about other people. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's above and beyond, I think, just material deprivation alone, uh, you know, sort of emotional security and attachment and family and care and all of those things uh, are also uh, extremely important. And later, it wasn't it wasn't just foster care. I mean, later when I was adopted and moved up, and we can talk about this too, mm-hmm. I saw with my my friends later that, you know, most of my, my friends in high school, most of them weren't in foster care. They were just from like the kind of families that uh, are pervasive in kind of working class, lower middle class uh, neighborhoods in America now. Uh, so, so yeah, it's... Uh, it's really, um, it's really a point that I try to hammer home is this sort of instability and the squalor rather than the poverty in and of itself. Mm. One of the, you know, I, I marked the hell out of your book with so many notes in the pages. And, you know, one of the comments that kept coming to mind was heartbreaking. And I know you convey this many times in the book that you're not after pity, but I kept thinking that, and you allude to this towards the end of the book about how, you know, really what you... I, I believe your hope for what who this book is really for sounds like a younger you. And I think a lot of great art, hmm. it comes from people creating something they wish they would have had at some point in their in their past. And to me, the book just resonated as being amazingly honest. My favorite passages typically were obviously the part to me were probably the parts that were the hardest for you to write because of how difficult they were. I wanted to read a couple of of quotes from the book and just get your your thoughts some of this i think you've you've alluded to and this is from you unstable environments and unreliable caregivers are bad because the children enduring them experience pain pain that etches itself into their brains and bodies and propels them to do things in the pursuit of relief 
that often inflict even more harm. This is another one. When kids are in, in survival mode, they don't have much energy left for contemplative thought. It wasn't until later when I was in a much more stable environment that I began to think m- more deeply and realized that I'd spent most of my youth in a relentless state of fight or flight. And this was one that, you know, I, I think was just, I think captures a lot of what it must be like to be raised in the sort of environment that you were like. And this is an, the, the one, the final one quote, I had little supervision at home and no one who took an interest in my grades. When adults let children down, children learn to let themselves down. I wanted to just yeah. give you an opportunity to take those ideas and and run with them in whatever way you think might resonate with people, especially kids that might be in the situation that you know you were in that could be coming across this interview and and feel as you know dispossessed and hopeless as you once did. Yeah, yeah, it's you know I I mentioned somewhere near the end of the book that this wasn't you know I didn't want people to you know I wanted the book to be honest I wanted it to be authentic but that was a lingering worry I actually was mm. like oh, people are going to feel bad like this isn't this, <laughs> this I didn't want it to be that kind of book you know and and in a way I, I it's almost like uh, if <laughs> if the book didn't have like a like a quote unquote happy ending where like my <laughs> life you know in the end turned out okay the book would just be a huge bummer mm. right like it's only because my life turned out to be relatively okay that I wasn't uh, that I didn't follow the sort of statistical trajectory that I should have been on that I'm even in a position to write a book like this in the first place and so you know I had a bunch of friends who ended up in much worse places than me most people in foster care end up in horrible situations, something like what it is, it's, I think it's 60% of boys are uh, in foster care are incarcerated. So for every one male foster child who graduates from college, 20 are are locked up. And so, you know, I didn't follow that. And so I'm in this position to write this book. And so I wanted it to communicate the experiences that, that kids in those environments face, uh, not just foster care, but just sort of general instability, which I write about in the sort of the middle parts of the book uh, after I'm adopted. But yeah, the um, yeah, the okay, so what did I say? Yeah, the, the 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 pain, the instability, the um, why are these environments bad? You know, that's that's a that's another theme of the book is you know there's a lot of attention paid by policymakers and affluent people, whatever you want to call them, cultural elites or the intelligentsia, the chattering class, what I call sometimes the luxury belief class is, you know, social mobility, you know, we need to get more kids into college, we need to improve grades, we need to improve learning outcomes, we need to get kids better jobs, bring more kids into the middle class. And that's all well and good. But it's this sort of very kind of materialist, credentialist, kind of reductive view of what social mobility is, or what happiness is. I mean, ultimately, what what is it about? We just want kids to get more degrees and have more money, but isn't the ultimate aim sort of well-being and flourishing and thriving and happiness? And you and I probably know plenty of people who have fancy degrees and earn money, but they're not necessarily happy, right? Like that's not, those things can help. Those things are sort of loosely correlated with well-being and happiness. Um, You know, it's, probably, you know, on average, you know, they, they do sort of are, are associated with, with those things. But, um, ultimately I think it's about, um, well-being. And so, so early life experiences, you know, if you've had a lot of stressful or traumatic or upsetting, uh, childhood experiences, uh, and then later on you go on to earn a fancy degree and make a lot of money, those things don't magically make up for everything that happened before. There's a, 
a lot. I think in the preface, I say that, you know, I would, you know, so I, I took this childhood instability scale. Um, this is like a sort of uh, uh, widely used scale in developmental psychology research, sort of measuring how much instability is in, in a child's life. And it asks questions like, you know, were you raised by, uh, you know, sort of two married parents? Were there divorces? Were there separations? How many times did adults move in and out of your home growing up? How frequently did you relocate? How many different occupations did your mom and dad hold throughout your childhood? Were they kind of constantly kind of unemployed, changing jobs, that kind of thing? Um, just sort of day-to-day disorder and uncertainty. Um, and, so I took this out of curiosity and I scored well into the top 1% of most unstable childhoods in the U S and, you know, I, I write that, you know, I would trade my position in the top 1% of educational attainment, you know, getting degrees from Yale and Cambridge and yeah, it's, it's, it feels good. And I'm happy, you know, it's better than for me, at least it's better than not having them, but I would trade them to have not experienced everything I did before. And I think if you asked a lot of the, you know, kids now in foster care, you know, even if, even if they were guaranteed positions at, you know, some fancy Ivy league university. Um, but Hey, you're going to have to go through foster care first. I think a lot of them would not take that deal. They would, you know, you say if you sort of gave them the choice, you can live in a sort of stable family, you can stay with your parents and they're going to treat you well. Um, but you're not going to go to college later, or you can stay in this kind of instability and squalor and uncertainty and kind of emotional, uh, emotionally upsetting, uh, situations, but later on, you're gonna, you're gonna earn money and, and get some fancy degrees. I don't think, I don't think kids would, would sort of take that, that latter option. Um, and so this is another point that I try to drive home is like, okay, yeah, it's, it's social mobility is something that's important. And still, I would rather it be a sort of a side effect, a sort of byproduct of things that are more important, which is sort of safety and security and well-being for for young children rather than sort of focusing on the you know what happens after they turn 18 oh you know they're 18 and they're from these impoverished backgrounds so let's try to get some of them into college let's sort of fix the problem at the wrong end of 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 that uh sort of marker of, of adulthood at 18 years old um and so so yeah they, these are just a, a couple of the points that that i wanted to highlight throughout the book um the importance of safety for kids, security for them, and uh, a sort of questioning the idea that credentials and money will make up for everything. Mm. One of the things that I, the quote that I kept thinking of when you were making that point about our culture's obsession with education, status, and credentials being the marker of a quote-unquote successful person is this quote from Peter Drucker that only what gets measured gets managed. And hmm. educational attainment, money, you know, yearly income, that is easily digestible as a statistical piece of information. Well-being might be quite a lot harder to get a handle on. I don't know if you agree with that, but in your just general obsession, and I totally agree with you that I think most people, if they're sane, would choose a happy family with less money than a lot more money in a chaotic, unhappy home life. Why do you think it is that, at least in America, it seems like we have come to a similar view on this, that there is this obsession with focusing solely on these status markers, this uh, the, you know, the, the income that you're obtaining? What, how do you make sense of that? Well, I think one is... Um... 
you know, so, so there's a lot of focus on school and credentials. And I think part of that is just because the people who set policy tend to be nerds who are really good at school. Mm. And they kind of think, well, I was good at school. And if we could just get more other kids to be good at school, then they can live like me and, you know, sort of live happily ever after. Um, and and you can sort of twist the dials of, of education policy, of uh, whatever, creating academic tracks or programs or school funding or those kinds of things, um, you know, no one's ever going to, um, you know, get voted out of office or, or be shouted down because they say school needs, schools need more money. But if you, you know, and so you can sort of blame schools or condemn schools or condemn education policy or, you know, uh, you know universities are an easy punching bag. And I, you know, I indulge in that myself. I think a lot of it is well-deserved. Universities have made a lot of blunders and missteps, um, which you know maybe we can get into later. Um, but it's hard with family, right? Because no one wants to like, you know, you know, people, I think they feel bad. They feel guilty if they start saying, you know, like, people you know poor families or single moms or you know this is funny sometimes when people read my book they say like so are you saying that like you know single moms are doing something wrong and i say like you know nowhere in my book do i point the finger at single moms uh and if it makes you feel better we you know if if anything in the book i i I feel like you know it sort of came through and and in the writing process itself as i was writing about my adoptive mom and her partner and the women in my life who helped to take Mm -hmm. care of me if anything, I feel like uh, a lot of the sort of finger pointing was actually at the men, you know, my my birth father who abandoned my mother and me, my adoptive father who stopped mm. speaking with me. And so, you know, if we're going to blame anyone, I would rather blame the absentee fathers or the deadbeat dads or the the fathers who aren't involved in their children's lives um, more so than than the the women who are often left uh, holding the baby um, and, and having to care for it on her own. So... Um, but I think that's what it is, is that um, it's hard to like you can't you can't, you know, you can't invoke policy to change parenting all that much. But you can with schools, you can with academic programs, with education. And so, yeah, you know, Melissa Kearney wrote this great book that just came out, The Two Parent Privilege, really mm-hmm. good book. And, um, you know, she makes this point in her book, too, that, you know, she's been involved in sort of upward mobility and questions around policy and education for for years now she's a she's a professor i think at the university of maryland and she goes to into these academic conferences and these policy discussions and how whenever she brings up family people uh you know they sort of slide you know slowly inch away from her like oh that's weird like family you know let's let's get back to talking about the safety net in schools and education but you know, one point that I make in the book is like, you know, my my schools actually weren't that bad. They weren't great, but they were like decent public schools. And my teachers were actually like pretty switched on and they saw that I had potential and they were like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like you're waste, you're squandering your potential. You're a smart kid. I can like they can tell like teachers, you know, they're usually pretty good at telling which students are even if the student isn't the most attentive or conscientious, they can kind of tell which kids are curious or which kids are smart. They could see a bit of this in me, but, you know, I just didn't see the point. All of the chaos, all the different homes, the different foster families, the, you know, all of the uncertainty and disorder in my life. I just thought, you know, what's the point? Like, why would I invoke the energy or invest the energy? You know, and I enjoy just sort of screwing around with my friends and, um, you know, you can put, uh, you know, a smart kid in the best possible school, but if he's going home to a place that's just sort of chaotic and mad and unpredictable, uh, a lot of those kids won't take advantage of those opportunities. 
Um, this was a, a study that I cited in the book as well. This uh, the study from James Heckman, the the econo- economist and Nobel laureate, and he compared the social mobility rates of Denmark and the U.S. and found that there wasn't a difference uh, between the two, despite Denmark having very generous. Uh, uh, social benefits, university education is free in Denmark, um, but the same amount of poor kids go on to graduate from university in Denmark as in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is has to do with, and, and they point this out in that paper too, Heckman and his co-authors, that um, you know families are are overlooked. The inputs that kids receive from their mothers or their fathers or their parent parents or caregivers, um, if they're not receiving that sort of regular emotional check-in with their families. Uh, very few kids feel motivated to do well in school. Um, you know, it's hard enough to make good choices for yourself, even in the best of circumstances, even when you do have parents who are on your case telling you to do your homework and whatnot. But if you don't have that, like, mm. very few, even if you're a smart kid, like just very few kids want to do hard things uh, without <laughs> some role model or some uh, adult oversight, uh, sort of gently encouraging them and and checking in on them and and sometimes making you do things you don't want to do, but it'll be good for you in the long run. No kid wants to do homework. No kid wants to study. I mean, maybe a few do, but most don't. Um, and so when you have adults around it, it can really go a long way. But when you're raised by a single mother or neglectful parents or people who are just kind of checked out, it's just not going to, to work out very well. So yeah, um, I think that People who wield cultural influence, um, whether they be, you know, columnists or academics or policymakers or, uh, you know, talk show hosts or podcasters, people who have some kind of a voice, if they could start to speak a little bit more about how, yes, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to, um, you know, helping the schools get along and making sure that education policy is where it should be, but also what's going on at home. What about what about the other whatever sixteen hours a day the kid isn't in the classroom? Let's make sure he's uh, he or she is also sort of being looked after there too. Hmm. I mean, it, it did seem like for many of those years in that context that you were forged in. You have this professor, I think, at Yale who says you were forged in a fire, something like that later in oh, the yeah, book. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was um, Harold Bloom. Yeah. Harold Bloom. And, you know, the the thought that I had when I was reading that, you know, the years of your life before you entered the military, it, it seemed like it was filled with a sense of just nihilism. And you must get mm. this a lot. I think you probably just alluded to this a little bit. And you're probably as qualified as as anyone I know of to comment on this. But in general, what are the big ideas that you have for how the culture at large can can help these people, right? I mean, I think you just alluded to, we always kind of look to policy as being uh, the first mover to try to try, try to help in these contexts. But, you know, additionally, in just the zeitgeist of the culture, and maybe this links to the luxury belief ideas and the luxury class, luxury belief class that you talk about, extensive in the book. How do you make sense of that? How would you respond to how the greater culture can begin to try to help change the kind of disrepair and chaos of so many kids who are growing up in that kind of a context? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. So so I re- received an early review of my book from uh, Kirkus, Kirkus Reviews, and they they said something about how so much of the book was bleak. 
and, uh, <laughs> and you use this term nihilism. And I didn't, you know, I, I knew that the first few chapters were pretty rough, uh, pretty grim. But then I thought, like, as the book goes on, you know, it sort of waxes and wanes. There are sort of highs and lows. But I think, like, taken as a whole, actually, yeah, the book is the book is probably actually heavier than I than I expected. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because I lived it, and it didn't. I mean, it felt, you know, there were there were periods where it did feel bad, but it didn't feel as bad until I saw it sort of written down on paper, reviewing it multiple times, and just sort of getting a feel for it. I'm like, yeah, this is this is actually a. Uh, you know, even though it does have somewhat of a of a positive ending, it's still um, you know, it's 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 a long, long way to get there. Uh and the nihilism and all of that. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, especially the teenage years. Um, you know, how to how to mitigate that. Um, you know, I I, I do think that it has a lot to do with sort of community, family neighborliness, you know, just sort of basic you know, what used to be just sort of conventional moral norms of neighborliness and respect and all of those things. I mean, you know, it's funny, like I, I mentioned my grandparents a few times, my adoptive grandparents in that book, um, my my mother, my adoptive mother, she was adopted herself. But anyway, so my grandparents, um, you know, they, if anything, they were probably poorer than us. Um, you know, when they were kids, they went through the Great Depression and, you know, they might, neither one of them went to college. You know, my dad was sort of this part-time mechanic slash handyman. And, you know, my mom talked about how, how, you know, when she was growing up, it was actually, it was actually much harder, uh, in some ways for her materially. But my grandparents stayed married. They, um, you know, built a sort of nice home for my mom and her siblings and they made it work. And, you know, my mom basically says, you know, you know, yeah, money was tight, but she has almost nothing but positive memories of that time um, growing up in the 1960s and early 70s with my grandparents in, in rural Oregon. And I think a lot of that was because, you know, the the neighborhood and the values and the people there of people just sort of looking after one another and watching each other's kids and people felt safe and it was just different. And uh, over time, with this sort of gradual deterioration of expectations and standards, you know, I wrote this piece in my Substack. stack, uh, no one expects young men to do anything, and they mm. respond by doing nothing. And, uh, you know, a point I make is that we used to have very high standards for young men, for example, like, so, so much of my book is about how just me and my friends at 16, 17 years old, were just sort of wandering around the neighborhood or the town, just like trying to like find things to do mischief, um, you know, trying to get people to hook us up with weed or beer or pills or whatever, or like starting fights, just, you know, trying to, um, you know, just sort of thrill seeking. And, and, you know, we, we, we did have jobs. I mean, most of my friends and I, we had part-time jobs, but like, I think that if we had had a bit more sort of oversight, um, you know, sort of adults around us, maybe held us to a higher standard. If our families weren't in such dire, uh, situation, just sort of config, you know, the configurations, you know, so, so there was me, you know, my, my family, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's sort of chaotic the way that my family sort of worked out with the divorces and the remarriages and the single mother for a while. And so, but there was me with those kinds of situations. I had another friend who was raised, you know, I had, I had two friends raised by a single mom, one friend raised by a single dad, one friend raised by his grandmother because both of his parents were in prison. And so it was like that was the kind of norm around us. I had one friend whose parents were were still together, but even then his dad was probably cheating on his mom. And like, you know, even then, uh, even when you did have that kind of stable two-parent situation or, you know, seemingly stable, there was still like, you know, infidelity and and um 
you know, I think, I think there's more of it now than there, than there used to be, or if, if there isn't more now, at the least, you know, in the past, people attempted to sort of keep up appearances and do their best for their spouses and for their kids, even if they themselves had personal failings or weren't always 100% devoted to their spouse. Whereas now I think it's just, um, you know, this kind of if if it feels good, do it. And, you know, I think like parents are, you know, there's this sort of obsession with authenticity. And if you feel this desire to you know, cheat on your spouse. And even if your kid finds out about it, um, it's okay as, as long as you provide for them in some way. Um, whereas kids actually pick up a lot from example. And, you know, that, that, that friend that I mentioned who, who was raised by both of his parents and his father cheated, you know, just, it just occurred to me. I don't even think I can make connected these dots in the book is that he himself has two mm. kids with two different women. Mm. Um, I think I mentioned that part in the book, but he didn't connect that with his father who, who, you know, was unfaithful to his mom. And that's, you know, we, we were like rumors about it. People would tease him about it. Like, you know, it just seems unlikely to me that that didn't have some effect on the way that he viewed women later and the way that he treated his own relationships. And I think that's overlooked too, is like, if you're a teenage boy and you're seeing adult men around you, whatever, be disrespectful to women or, um, or just even if you lack a uh, good sort of role models around you for what a relationship is supposed to look like, uh, then yeah, you're just going to sort of uh, indulge your base desires and impulses. And, and uh, you know, naturally I think like without some containment, you know, young men are going to treat people around them, not very well, you know, not just women, but their own friends. I mean, you know, probably the main victim of my friends and I were each other and uh you know that and then you know we, we didn't really treat girls especially great either but we didn't have anyone around us you know no oversight you know it's funny we hear like you know like when, when you enter the sort of middle upper middle class educated class you know there's a lot of discussion around toxic masculinity and all of these kinds of things but these conversations are almost all had among like people with college degrees who are generally like nice people that's the other thing is like now i interact with guys you know, guys like you and guys like, you know, my friends now are like, everyone is very nice. Everyone is like, to me, it's like this, everyone is chivalrous and kind and polite and like nothing like the guys I grew up with. And uh, it took me a little while to sort of adjust to that. But it's just funny to me that like, you know, the, the, as I interact with more and more polite men, like that's where all the conversations are about like how horrible men are. Like it's, it's, uh, if you want to meet horrible men, I mean, there are places you can go, but it's not going to be on a, on a, on a college college campus. I mean, you will find some horrible men, but not nearly to the extent you would in uh, some some rundown neighborhoods. So, I think that's a very good point. And I want to I want to transition into the post Red Bluff era of your life shortly here. But I, you know, one of the things that I I knew I wanted to ask you about is your views on parenting in general and. A lot of my takeaway from especially your early years was these were stories of kids who were either unwanted or certainly felt unwanted. And if you think hmm. that, you know, parenthood in general should be reserved or more the exception than the rule, really reserved for people who have um, across the cultures, across socioeconomic classes, just people who have gotten to a point in their life when they have really gotten to a place where they know they want to be a parent and can actually be the sort of role models and parents that 
kids really desire. I, I'm sure you've thought a decent ma- amount about this. I know you allude to the fact that you know, you hope to be a dad, I think at one point in your life, but you know, in general, I just wanted to put that to, to you to, to get your thoughts on parenthood for, for people still kind of being the default rather than something that um, maybe not everybody is quite equipped to handle in a way that doesn't, uh, you know, result in these catastrophic second and third order consequences of the father disappearing after a year or two of the kid's existence, things like that. I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on that in general. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, yeah, that, that, that final point, I mean, there's, um, you know, I witnessed this myself and there's, uh, sort of, you know, these experiences that, you know, these recollections match sort of broad national trends, um, there's a book uh, by a couple of sociologists called Promises I Can Keep by um, mm-hmm. Maria Kefalis is one of the authors. The other author's name escapes me, but they're two female sociologists. It's an, it's an excellent book, and they sort of document uh, the lives and experiences of, of single moms in various sort of poor and impoverished neighborhoods across the U.S., um, and it's like a very, very diverse set. I mean, these are not just, you know, poor white women, but also poor black women, poor Hispanic women, different, just, just sort of different, different uh, backgrounds of, of sort of the lower socioeconomic strata. And yeah, one of the things they point out in that book is something like, you know, if, if two unmarried parents are in a relationship when a child is born, uh, by the time that child has uh, his or her second birthday, uh, it's something like greater than 50% chance those two parents are are no longer going to be married after, or no, no longer going to be together after two mm. years. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, should, should people, I mean, it would be nice if people thought more deeply and more carefully about whether they want to have kids or not. I mean, I think this is just sort of one of the, the un, unforeseen consequences of, the sort of championing of the the sort of cultural or social sexual revolution of the 1960s of you know s- suddenly if uh you know if it feels good do it ha- you know if you want to um you know have a lot of promiscuous sex with people you don't know very well as long as everything is consensual it's fine and you know i think it is fine like i wouldn't you know i'm not saying i would outlaw any of this like you know people are adults and they're going to do what they want that's fine but it would be nice if we did have a bit more just sort of awareness of you know there are risks involved uh pregnancy is like you know we have reproductive technology but i'm not i'm not sure that um they had necessarily the intended effect i mean i think they you know they they do manage to control pregnancy but i mean one you know one thought experiment that i've um suggested elsewhere is if you know if you traveled back to 1945 and you told people um you know within a couple of decades we're going to have you know we're going to have a pill you can take that's going to you know uh, prevent pregnancy Uh, We're going to have, at least in most states, you know, depending on the laws and so forth, but abortion will be pretty widely available. Um, And you're just going to have like this massive expansion of reproductive technology, morning after pill and so forth, you know, much different than the situation in 1945, which was, you know, basically nothing or like whatever crazy back alley abortions and sort of, um, you know, homeopathic approaches to try to protect or prevent pregnancy. 
Um, and so you ask people, you were going to have this future. Do you think there are going to be more foster kids or fewer? Do you think there are going to be more single parents or fewer? Do you think there are going to be more unwanted kids or kids who are living in squalor or chaos or, or poverty or what have you? And I think a lot of people in 1945 would have said, like, no child's ever going to be born again unless their parents want them. Like there's probably not going to be any foster kids because any parent, like if any, any person who wants to have sex doesn't have to get pregnant anymore. And I think, um, and, and there was a really interesting paper in, in from Brookings institution from the nineties, um, Akerlof and, and Yellen, Janet, Janet Yellen, who I think is, um, she's in the Biden administration, but they, they wrote this really interesting paper about, uh, sort of reproductive shock, technological shock on, on, on pregnancy patterns. And one of the things they point out um, the data seem consistent with this idea that once uh, once motherhood became a biological choice for women, fatherhood became a social choice for men. So prior to the advent of reproductive technology, if a man got a woman pregnant, mm. there were all of these social forces and norms in place, like from parents, from older people in the neighborhood, from the woman's parents, from the woman herself, from the man's friends, you know, it was dishonorable uh, among young men. If you got a girl pregnant, you had to marry her. That's just, the, you know, that was just what you had to do. Uh, you had to take care of her and the baby. Um, but then once uh, birth control was introduced and abortion was introduced, um, suddenly, uh, if a woman got pregnant, the, the implicit thinking seemed to be, well, that's your fault. You know, now it's on you. It wasn't the man's fault. The man didn't get you pregnant. You kind of got yourself pregnant. And so if you want to have the baby, you can, but the man doesn't have to stick around because, you know, you had these options ahead of you and you chose to have the baby anyway. And so, yeah, there's child support and the, the man can maybe financially send some money to help with, with childcare and upkeep, but he has no obligation or duty anymore and all of the social pressure and the guilt and the stigma and the shaming on him more or less evaporated to the point where now you know in 2024 you can essentially find more people you know stigmatizing and shaming people for smoking cigarettes than for being absentee dads i mean if you learn a guy doesn't see his kids very much it's like oh that's too bad but if you see someone smoking it's kind of still okay to say hey you know that's bad for you but you know no one's going to tell the, the absentee father that hey that's bad for your kids that you're not around mm -hmm. so we've sort of shifted uh our our condemnation and the things that we tend to care about but yeah so so to your question yeah it would be nice um but we you know we seem very bad at sort of understanding externalities and, and second order consequences, but I would sort of encourage people to think more about, you know, is it a good idea to have kids and, and is this person that you're currently uh, in some kind of a relationship with, would that be like, if you're going to be in a relationship with them and if pregnancy is a possibility, is this person going to be the best sort of parent? You know, I saw this, this tweet and it was funny to see the comments on it, but you know, some, so it was like sort of a tongue in cheek tweet, I thought, but it was something like, uh, you shouldn't have sex with anyone unless you want them to be the parent of your child. And I don't, you know, I don't think the person was saying, you know, you should marry, you know, you shouldn't have sex unless you're married. I don't think that was the point. I would think it was more like every person you have sex with pregnancy is a possibility. And, uh, and, you know, do you want to be tied to that person? Do you want to raise that child with that person? And it's, you know, I think it's, it's something worth, it's something worth thinking about. I mean, I don't think it's realistic. I mean, you know, the genie's out of the bottle and we're never going to sort of roll back the cultural changes, but I do think we can be a bit more, uh, careful about it. And then, oh, to your earlier point about what can we do to maybe mitigate some of this? I mean, I've written before about the, the sort of 
incredible success of the anti-tobacco movement mm. uh, in the early 1980s, something like 40% of Americans smoked cigarettes. And by the early 2000s, it had plummeted to less than 20%. So essentially, you know, cigarette smoking was cut in half or, or even more. I mean, nowadays, it's something like 15% of, of Americans uh, report that they smoke cigarettes. Um and so it used to be ubiquitous, but then, you know, there were all of these policies and measures put in place, you know, basically cigarettes were never outlawed. I guess menthol cigarettes were outlawed, but cigarettes were never outlawed, but there were these sort of measures, there were sort of social norms and cultural norms that changed around it such that, you know, it went from being cool or being sort of casual or normalized uh, to sort of being a bit stigmatized, you'd be judged for it. And I think there are ways to do this for for other kinds of social norms too. You know, people say shame doesn't work or stigma doesn't work, but it clearly worked, I think, in the case of, of cigarettes. I know there were sort of economic uh, um, uh, innovations and syntax and those kinds of things too, but I really think a lot of it was just people felt bad if they smoked and they didn't want other people to judge them for it. And I think, uh, you know, we could we could do a little bit of this. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I would see like billboards or commercials and it was like, you know, some like some woman with a tracheotomy with a hole in her neck. Yeah. And like she'd have the little device she'd hold up and like talk about how she smoked for 30 years and now she has to, you know, suffer this way. And those made an impact. On, I mean, I still smoked anyway, but I remember like, you know, being spooked by it and apparently it worked on other people. It didn't work on it. didn't work on me. So maybe this isn't. But anyway. Um, and so I wonder if like, you know, if we had some, you know, public ad campaigns, you know, there are different ways you could do it, but one would be, you know, if a kid is raised by, you know, in a stable two parent family, they're, uh, X percent less likely to be incarcerated. Or, you know, if the father is around in their child's life, they're, you know, X percent more likely to graduate from high school or go on to whatever, have a successful relationship or self. I mean, there's all kinds of statistics that we could dig up, um, sort of seeing the the positive outcomes for kids who have fathers in their lives or uh, who are raised in sort of stable environments. And so if we could have something like this and, and framed it in a way that, um, you know, whatever, doesn't, doesn't necessarily make single mothers or single parents feel bad, but just show that, um, you know, there are ways of life that are statistically aligned with more favorable outcomes for your kids. I think that could be sort of one step in that direction. Hmm. And I know you say this towards the end of the book that that's the looser cultural norms from the luxury belief classes. That's the one specifically that I think if you, if I remember correctly, you allude to it um, being the hardest one for you to accept or the one that made you the most irate was this view that families and parenthood and marriage marriage with kids was not important and that you were getting that message when you were you were on campus and you know your own life was a testament to how some of those ideas were almost certainly off base and it reminds me of a quote that i've loved for years which is that high status americans walk like the 50s and talk like the 60s and hmm. so many times when i was reading your your book especially towards the end i had that that quote running through my head because I think that's become much more fashionable uh, to approach subjects like family and marriage um, that as you just articulated. And, you know, many years ago, I interviewed a woman. This was back when I was living in San Francisco who had lived as a drug addicted homeless person in the tenderloin of San Francisco for more than a decade. Uh, 
took a bus out there from Ohio when she was 19, was a Mensa student in high school, mm. incredibly in- intelligent woman. Her name is Tracy Helton. And I learned about her from a 90s documentary that was done by HBO called Black Tar Heroin, which is still available on YouTube. And it's one of these 90s documentaries that you know there were very few of them like it at the time because of how raw they how raw it was and you see this woman who i I think tracy was in her mid-20s at that time she looks like she's days away from death skinny obviously strung out on some combination of drugs and by the time i met her she was one of the one to two to three percent of people with her background who had escaped and by the time I met her, she was in her 40s. She was married. She was the mother of three kids. She had a job at, I think, at San Francisco General Hospital, which is where I interviewed her. You know, you the the story is not the same, but I think the percentages of someone from your background getting to where you are and the percentages of somebody like Tracy getting to where she is are probably not too far off from one another. And mm. you you talk about this point in the book where it's it's related to your transition out of the trajectory you were on and this is the quote from the book from you which is quote i knew the path i was currently on was definitely the wrong one and listing seemed like the smart choice and there's another quote shortly thereafter that you have which is quote but the military taught me that people don't need motivation they need self discipline Motivation Mm -hmm. is just a feeling. Self-discipline is, quote, I'm going to do this regardless of how I feel. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know for you how you knew, because to me, it seemed like this was a major transition point for you, that you needed to get out and do something different, and that enlisting was possibly the only real rope for you to pull on um, Mm -hmm. to lift yourself out of there. And I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about that point, which in my reading of the book was really the beginning of your trajectory into a totally different world. Yeah. Well, so I enlisted when I was 17, right after I graduated high school. And, you know, there were, there were a couple of different factors involved there. I was the only one out of my, my group. I had five close friends. There were six of us in this little group in high school. And I was the only one who enlisted and the others sort of went on their path to, you know, a couple of them were, were later arrested, went to prison. You know, the others sort of went into sort of menial jobs, minimum wage kind of jobs. And, uh, and yeah, I'm the, I'm to this day, I'm the only one who graduated from college. One of my friends, I literally met him this past summer, like five, six months ago. And he, he had been in community college for like, I don't know, 10 plus years. And he just recently transferred to uh, a four-year state school, you know, all these years later. So, you know, maybe in another 10 years, he'll have his bachelor's degree. But like, that's <laughs> the one other besides me. And we'll see where that goes for him. But I you know, I was legitimately happy because he'd been, you know, I'd, I'd never, I'd, I never understood how anyone could stretch community college out for so long. <laughs> uh, he failed a bunch of classes, smoked a lot of weed. You know, he was like, you know, even, even in his late 20s and in his early 30s, he was still, you know, yeah, just still couldn't get it together. And it, yeah, anyway, so, okay. Um, when I was 17, uh, I lived with my friend, my best friend from high school, um, who's actually this guy I just mentioned, and his brother and their father. 
And their father uh, was a retired police officer, Air Force veteran. And he was like basically the only kind of real male figure in my life as a teenager. Um, I had a lot of respect for him. He was kind of an absentee dad. He was so he worked at a private as a private investigator by the time I moved in with them. And he was just always on the road for work, always gone. You know, he had to do like whatever stakeouts. He would just like never be home. We'd see him maybe once a week. Um, but whenever he was around, you know, he'd, you know, take us out to dinner and he'd talk to us and just sort of give us life advice and stuff. And yeah, one of the things he said was like, yeah, you know, I, you know, you think he had grown up relatively poor and joined the military and that kind of got him on a, on a track into the police academy and sort of got it, got him onto a decent life or a better life than he otherwise could have expected. And then I had a, a teacher in high school who also uh, had been in the military, and I liked this teacher. You know, I wasn't a great student, um, but he was one of these teachers who recognized potential in me, and he would sort of take me aside and talk to me. Like, once he kind of realized I was never going to, like, really apply myself, he would still just talk to me and just sort of see. Like, I think he was curious. He was just asking me questions, or we'd just speak after class, or, you know, he'd see that I would, like, have books in my backpack that I checked off from the library, and just sort of, you know, what are you reading there? And he kind of gave up on me as a student, but just took an interest in me as, like, a person. And, uh, and that was that was actually nice. And uh, and then he, um, he, yeah, he showed me some pictures of himself when he was in the military. He was like, yeah, this might actually be good for you. Um, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of a screw up right now, but he didn't say this, but you know, this was kind of the sense I got from him. He was like, you know, you're kind of on a bad path now, but maybe if you join the military, you'd be able to get yourself together. Um, and then the other thing was I worked, um, I had two different jobs in high school. One was as a dishwasher. The other, um, I was a bagger at a grocery store and, you know, I saw the guys that I was working with, you know, they were in their twenties, some of them reaching their, you know, by reaching their thirties. And I just thought like, do I really want to be like washing dishes when I'm 30 years old or making pizzas or sort of working in the back of a kitchen, um, for, you know, whatever, seven, $8 an hour. Like, is this really what I want to be doing in 10 years? And, you know, these guys, you know, they were fun to be around and like some of them were, you know, we thought of them as cool because they'd like buy us beer or like hook us up with weed or whatever. But like, I did think like, you know, as, as high school was coming to an end, I was like, it is kind of weird. Like, you know, being like a 30 year old man, like drinking beer with a bunch of high schoolers, mm. like, is that the guy I want to be when I'm 30? And so between those experiences, I figured, okay, well, maybe I'll just join the military. It'll get me right out of here my family life was falling apart too. I'd mentioned that I was living with these two brothers and their dad, but my mom and her relationship with her partner was deteriorating. And I just, you know, there was just a lot of emotional turmoil and I just really wanted to get out of there. And so, yeah, it was not an especially well thought through decision. Um, you know, in that, like, I knew I wanted to get out of there, but I didn't really know what the military was. You know, I knew it would get me out. You know, I knew like, okay, I'll go to somewhere else. I'll do basic training. I'll have a job. But I really didn't sort of think step by step what it would entail and how difficult it was going to be. And in a way, I'm I'm kind of glad I didn't know. I'm glad that I mm. was maybe underprepared because I'm not sure I would have done it otherwise. Uh, but be, the fact that I went in pretty ignorant, um, it was probably good for me. And uh, I remember in basic training going through it, I'm like, man, this kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't like this very much. Like if I had known this was, you know, what it was going to be, I don't think I would have done this. Um, but uh, no, I went through it and I was, you know, kind of proud of myself for getting through it. And yeah, that that sort of re redirected the the path I was on. You know, one of the things I know you mentioned about that time in, in the military, which I thought was a really brilliant insight is that one of the... <laughs> aspects of the military that 
really helps to redirect often aimless, you know, especially young men is the absence of so much free time that hmm. you, 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 when you, I think you say something like this in the book that, uh, you know, that success is not always about always doing the right thing. It's about not doing the stupid thing. And when that yeah. is removed from you entirely, that that can really help, you know, give structure to, uh, to kids that otherwise don't, don't have that or haven't had that in their life. But, you know, to me, one of the other aspects of that story when you're in the military that just as a fan of your work for so long that was so interesting and jarring was yeah that seems to be the time when your um all of this buried shit from your past just started to percolate again or maybe mm. even for the first time and that you know, I was a big drinker when I was that age as well. But I mean, the drinking really seemed to ratchet up in your life. And the drinking and driving was also fairly mm. common. And the fights that you were getting in, that even though you you seemed to be on a better trajectory, it seemed like a lot of the trauma from your early life. And look, I, I can I know what this is like as a as a guy myself of how hard it can be to admit to yourself and to other people when you're not in a good place. And that was obviously yeah. something that, um, I think you had to, to, to do. And I think was probably one of the hardest things you probably ever had to admit. Um, I just wanted to give you some time to talk about that phase of your life as well, because I thought the book so brilliantly detailed, um, you know, even in your little micro family, you are known at that time as the as the guy who escaped, the successful one, yeah. the one who's not putting um, your difficulties on others. But you say this in the book that if you want to know the quality of your life, just sit by yourself and listen to yeah. the thoughts that are going on in your head. And I wondered if you could give a little bit of uh, give some voice to that phase of your life as well. Yeah, that was uh, that was the first. So when this book comes out, and I guess by the time this this uh, this episode of the podcast comes out, this will be the first time where people can uh, read uh, about this part of my life that I had never really spoken about publicly, which was when I was in rehab. Um, so how old was I? This was, you know, the, the way that I, I, I marked time here. So this was when. Uh, so I, I was in this 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 treatment facility, and in some of the like, it was it was housed within a hospital and the hospital was always playing CNN. And this was the part of whatever, 20, 2014 when um, that Malaysian airliner disappeared mm. and that's mm. all CNN played for like <laughs> six months, at least the, in my memory. Mm. And so it was like, you know, it, so it's weird. Like if I were like sort of in, in the hallways of this hospital and this treatment facility and it's like, Oh, CNN still cares about this like random airliner that went missing. Um, so yeah, I'll, like I'll always remember that was, I think 20, 2014, early 2014. Um, and so, yeah, like late, yeah, probably back, this was actually like this kind of period of deterioration and um, shame and uh, when the drinking got out of control. This was, yeah, 2013. So I was, yeah, 20, 23 years old. And I was, um, yeah, I mean, this was a period where, uh, you know, I started to become a little bit, so this was, you know, five, six years into my job and was getting a little bit 
what like like restless there i wasn't entirely happy with it you know because i chose this job when i was 17 it wasn't um you know this isn't something i always wanted to do or anything it was just sort of a, a latch last ditch attempt to get out of where i was and then you know the job it wasn't like my first choice it was like an okay job um so i started growing happy there i started to sort of i was also in a in a period where um yeah i had more stability more predictability in my schedule i had some time to think reflect i think some of this may have just been um sort of like almost biological maturation of like you know once you reach your early 20s you know your frontal lobes start to develop a bit more you start to become a bit more sort of self-aware and self-reflective and sort of processing the memories of everything that i had gone through and and yeah naturally so the other thing is like you know it's funny i talk about these these impositions the military um had had uh you know sort of whatever it contained me in that way um whereas when i was a teenager you know we were just sort of getting into trouble all the time and the military is like you know this very rigid structure but by the time i was you know in my early 20s one thing that i could indulge as much as i wanted in which i couldn't as a teenager was drinking right when i was mm. 17 i you know we still had to like whatever like like find different ways of like bargaining and bartering and 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 whatever like trying to see whose older brother could hook us up with booze or whatever but when i'm you know by the time you're in your 20s and you can just drink as much as you want whenever you want when you're not on the clock and so i was like it was literally like uh you know whatever i'm not working and i'm over 21 so why wouldn't i be drinking <laughs> and yeah it got like really i mean it was it's funny it's, it's fun at first you know and then like it just there was no um there was no break you know there was nothing around me no counterforce to say that's not a good idea because i was you know for a while i was living in a house with a bunch of other guys and they were drinking just as much or more as i was and then i had an apartment later by myself and it was just you know drinking alone and uh you know i've noticed the more i was drinking alone the more i thought about my early life and the more unhappy i became and um you know there were like a, a you know there was a, uh, a lot of sort of a, a sequence of bad things had occurred in a short time frame one was uh, i'd been in a relationship and that sort of ended abruptly and i mean you know in hindsight there were you know all the signs were there that it was about to end anyway but you know it did sort of come to a head in one day where you know, she was unhappy and part of it was due to my drinking and my just sort of selfishness of just like, you know, I, I just never, I wasn't a good, I wasn't a good person to be in a relationship with, you know, one of the, you know, I just, I had never seen what a good, healthy relationship looked like. And I tried my best to like, whatever, imitate it, but it wasn't working out well. And so she was probably right to leave it at that time. And then, um, yeah, one of my coworkers, you know, he was, he wasn't like, we weren't super close, but we were pretty good friends. He committed suicide. He was in the same unit as me. We worked together and that hit me pretty hard. And, you know, I just, I was sort of growing more and more distant for my adoptive family. And, you know, one, one day I just, this was like, yeah, one evening after work, I just like drank and drank, you know, I was, and then it was like, this sort of self-destructive drinking of like chugging like bourbon mm. like right out of the bottle and uh yeah i woke up in my my bathtub i had this this apartment um and i was living alone and i like woke up i don't know it was like four or five a.m and you know i just couldn't get my balance and tried to drink water and i kept sort of retching it back up I texted a friend. This was like maybe an hour. It was like 6 a.m. A friend of mine, he was sort of, he had just woken up. He was about to get ready for work. And he came over. He and another, another one of my coworkers came to check in on me. And 
he just told I was there was something wrong. And so we went to the hospital, went to the ICU. And, you know, I'd I had already been to a clinic before this, sort of on my own. I just wanted to check in on myself, but it ended up not going anywhere. And anyway, so I'm in this hospital and uh yeah, the the doctor basically recommended me for for treatment. And once they'd sort of asked me a few questions, asked how how much I'd been drinking and how long this had been going on, and you know, asked me a bunch of questions and yeah, they were like, yeah, this is, you know, <laughs> you've basically been like a functional alcoholic for about 18 months, but it's time for you to like, you know, address this before it gets too out of control. I mean, it already has gotten a bit out of control. You just have gotten lucky and haven't hurt anyone because I would just drink and drive. I'd like drink in parking lots, whatever. And it was just, you know, a matter of luck that uh, nothing had happened yet other than maybe a few speeding tickets. And that was it. You know, it's funny. There was one time I didn't, I didn't even tell the story in the book. It's funny. Like you write the book and then memories still come. Yeah. There was one time I was, I was stationed in Germany at this time. I got pulled over one night and I was like, I was hammered and the Pulitzer, side, the German police pulled me over and the police officer flashed his light in my eyes and he could tell I was American. And you know, I think I was still, I was wearing my, my uniform. This might, this might've been, yeah, I think this was after work. I might have been like just drinking in like a parking lot or something. But he asked me in English, uh, how many drinks have you had tonight? And th- just the way that he said it, like cops don't, you know, especially American cops don't ask that question. Sometimes they ask, have you been drinking? Or they don't even ask that. They're just sort of trying to trip you up. But this German police officer just straight up said, how many drinks have you had tonight? And I looked at him and I said, I just said zero. <laughs> and I was like, you know, he's either going to know or he isn't. But like, you know, no matter what number I get, if I, if, even if I say one, he's going to be like, you know, but I just said zero. And he was like, zero. And I said, yeah, zero. And he's like, where do you live? And I was like, I was fortunate. I was like, literally right around the block, like maybe whatever, two blocks. And he's like, okay, well, we're just going to follow you home then. I'm like, okay. And then that was it. I was like, just, you know, just, that was an extremely lucky thing, right? Like if, uh, if he had called me on on my bluff, (laughs) um, you know, I could have been arrested that night, but I just fortunately wasn't. Um, And so anyway, a bunch of things like that. Um, and yeah, it was, it was tough to admit it to my friends. Um, you know, my friends were proud of me. Uh, you know, they liked, you know, yeah, my, you know, I'd, I'd visit, they'd say like, oh yeah, this is Rob. He's back from the air force. You know, he's mm-hmm. whatever, you know, like I, I, I had that sort of proud feeling among them and my mom was happy, you know, she, you know, had, a uh, you know, I, I bought her this like license plate frame for her car, U.S. Air Force mom, which, you know, I, you know, funny enough, since I'm talking about cops, she's telling me, you know, this got me out of a bunch of speeding tickets. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, that wasn't the reason she was proud, but, you know, she was just, you know, very um, happy that I had sort of climbed out of the situation I was in. My sister was proud of me. And so, yeah, when I had to call them and tell them, like, actually, I'm not okay. You know, I've basically been lying to all of you for more than a year that I'm okay and I'm not. And, I don't think I've really been okay, maybe ever. And this is like, just now I'm starting to realize it. And, uh, you know, it was important for me to tell them that and, to, uh, you know, just sort of address all of it. I mean, this, I make this point near the end of the book about how, you know, the body and the mind was, you know, we've, we've sort of adapted to overcome difficult situations, but part of the way that works is, you know, you can, you can sort of, um, get through a difficult situation uh but you eventually do have to sort of pay the cost later you know whatever it is if it's if it's whether it's a physical trauma or a, a mental trauma or psychological trauma right where like in the moment you know you could be in a 
you know, on a car accident and have a serious injury, but because your body's in shock, you can actually move and the adrenaline is going. You can actually do things you ordinarily couldn't do because your body is in fight or flight and you're trying to survive. Uh, and then you don't even feel the pain, right? Like if you're whatever you've been seriously injured, you may not even feel the pain at first. Um, and I think this works for, for psychological trauma, at least certain forms anyway, where in the moment you don't actually feel it very much. Uh, but then later when you're in a situation where, you know, your body senses that it's in a safe enough place to start processing those memories or to, um, to go through them. And that was the sort of period, um, once I was sort of financially secure and once my life was predictable and stable enough that, you know, for whatever reason, that was the time for me to just sort of start dealing with that. And, uh, unfortunately it ended up, it ended up working out. I mean, it was, it was tough. I mean, it still took, you know, a year, year and a half plus after that to sort of develop healthy habits and find sort of healthier ways to communicate with my, my family and be more honest, but yeah, it was hard. Like I said, you know, there was a reason I I haven't written publicly about that before. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was one of the harder chapters to write too. I, I have no doubt about it. And is speaking of that point, there, this I think segues into another one of the quotes from the book that I wrote down, which is this is from you. <laughs> Quote, for as long as I can for as long as I remember, I felt a constant undercurrent of throbbing rage along with anxiety and shame, which I sometimes m- mistook for rage, for being abandoned, for being unwanted. But I was incapable of understanding it or communicating it. I was so overwhelmed by emotions, I didn't understand that I acted impulsively just to prove to myself and others that I wasn't weak. I'd once read that when an animal gets hurt, they know they are vulnerable and that predators will target them, so they are prone to lash out at the slightest sign of danger. I gripped the bat and smashed the taillights of a nearby car in the parking lot. Um, I think that may have been from slightly earlier in the book, but I think it's related to, in general, a lot of the uh, the, you know, the, the tax that eventually you had to pay for what you had dealt with earlier in your life. And I think this is also related to a theme that we started with in the book, which is that we're obsessed with success being these objective markers of educational achievement and money and not like, is this kid? Well, (laughs) are are they, Uh, are they a good friend? Are they trustworthy? Are they someone that you would want to have as a neighbor? Um, Are, you know, are they not dealing with something secretly that they don't feel like they can talk to anyone about? And um, it's one of the things, one of the reasons why I feel like conversations like this are so can be so valuable to people is to uh, maybe reorient our priorities on what we're trying to do here. Yeah, there's a there's a section in your book where you're talking, I think, to your psychologist or your psychiatrist, and you alluded to this just a second ago. He asked you, when was the last time that you were happy? And I think you hmm. said maybe never, something like that. Yeah. Um and yeah. yeah. I mean, there were yeah, yeah. That I mean, that was yeah, when I was when I was in, in treatment and yeah, that was, uh, I remember, I, yeah, when he asked me that, I'm like, yeah, it was like, there were, there were, there were like sort of bursts of pleasure, or joy, or just sort of hedonistic pursuit of, you know, thrill seeking or something like that when I was a teenager or when I was with my friends in the military later on. But in terms of like, I'm okay. Like, I feel like whatever I'm doing, what I want in my life, my relationships are in a good place. I'm in a good place. Like it took, you know, it wasn't until after rehab that I, that I started to sort of build that life for myself and, 
to sort of be more deliberate about the kind of person I wanted to be and the kind of uh, friend or um, brother and son and boyfriend, whatever, just like, like, am I the kind, yeah, like almost like the question you would just ask, like, am I the kind of person I would want to be around? Um, and before I probably would have said no. And, you know, it took, took a while before I, I started to say yes. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, the, the question of just, you know, there's so much preoccupation with conventional success with, you know, did you go to college, which college and how much money are you earning? And are you sort of successful in the eyes of other people? And, I'm, you know, I may have even fell into that trap to some degree, just in the military, like, you know, at least in, in the context of Red Bluff, like I was doing really well, just, you know, joining the military in the first place, it was kind of a more, you know, blue collar, working class, patriotic kind of town. So just joining in the first place was kind of cool and then doing well and getting promoted early and just, you know, going to different places, deploying, going to Europe. Like it was like, you know, yeah, you're doing really well and you're earning money and you have your own car and your own place and whatever, like all of those kinds of things, you know, externally, um, you know, I at that, yeah, before, before the breakup, I, I had a, a pretty steady girlfriend and, yeah, everything externally looked okay, but uh, internally, I was sort of slowly um, having to to come to terms with everything that had happened, and as a result of that, everything around me kind of had to stop, and I had to had to pause for a bit and and sort of process and and reflect, and yeah, that was it was hard, you know, because it seemed like I was on this upward trajectory. There was a period early on, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go to college. I'll use the GI Bill. But then I had this major sort of misstep, this sort of downward spiral. Um, and there was a period where I thought like, I mean, I may never even go to college after this. Like this is, you know, that, that feeling of, you know, I, I went into foster care because my parents had um, let me down and then, you know, I joined the military, you know, in, in some ways, at least because my adoptive family had let me down. And then now I'm, you know, now I'm in rehab and that wasn't anyone's fault, but my own, you know, at least sort of proximately, you know, it was my mm -hmm. behaviors that led me there. You know, you can talk about, oh, well, where did the behaviors come from and all of the effects and everything, but it was like the, the choices that I made led me there. And so I had basically let myself down and I thought, wow, if I can't even, you know, like once I got out of all of the mire and all, once I had gotten, yeah, all the, situ the, the, the detrimental situations I'd been mired in and I still can't get it right, then maybe I'll never be able to. And that was really hard to deal with that. Maybe, you know, while, especially the early, maybe like the first week or so of rehab, it was such a shocking experience. I mean, because a lot of the people in there, that was like their third or fourth attempt in treatment to try to get clean. And I was like, is that going to be me? And hmm. You know, is this what it's going to be like or how how much can I, um, you know, how much can I really improve? You know, because I thought I, I was improving and it actually seems like in some ways I'm worse than when I had started because I didn't have a drinking problem when I was 17 when I first joined. So, mm. you know, it just took a lot of a lot of effort, a lot of sort of self-work um, before I realized what I wanted to do next. Mm. And what you did next. And I I think I wrote this in the margins when you launch from living in Germany, having gone through rehab, entering New Haven, Connecticut at Yale. And then eventually I know you went to Cambridge for your PhD, but the, the segue from you going from where you had been in your life into Yale in your reading of it. I mean, I grew up in kind of the industrial Midwest myself. I was obsessed with going to a really good school. 
I was obsessed with the West Wing when I was in high school, which mm-hmm. I know you talk about uh, learning mm-hmm. about how that was an important TV show to uh, get acquainted with when you when you went to Yale. I went to Duke and I think had a lot of the same observations about feeling like almost like an alien being in this new land around people who were not really like anyone I had grown up with in my own life. And I know just from knowing what I do about your own background that it was it must have been even more extreme for you going from you know Red Bluff to then the military to this elite mm. school. And I won't do justice to a lot of what you write about in the book related to your observations of what you learned in uh, your time on campus. But I, I remember w- there's one section in the book where you talk about this Halloween incident at Yale with the uh, the Christakis family. I've had Nicholas on this uh, podcast before, and I, I love that guy. That was a great and episode. I, I listened oh, to it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. He, uh, he talks about that. And I to me, he walked away from that looking damn near saintly in how he handled himself with such grace during that period. And I, I just wanted to give you an opportunity. There's so much here about what it what you saw when you went to Yale. But one of the things I, you write about in the book is that after this Halloween incident, initially you were concerned that maybe you weren't intellectually on par with a lot of these students. And after this incident, you no longer had those, those issues um, so much. And so I just wanted to give an open space for you to talk about the major, you think you know, most important, relevant ideas and uh, observations that you made from coming from such a different place into this other you know, really upper class world that Yale really is. Yeah, it was, it was a strange experience. I mean, I was, I was excited. I mean, of course, you know, like uh, Yale's a you know pretty famous school and I, um, yeah, it was surreal the first few weeks. And then, um, you know, so I arrived in the fall of 2015, you know, I would, I got out of the military in August and started classes in September. And then in October, all of that stuff about the Christakis and the Halloween costume controversy blew up. And yeah, I remember feeling, you know, the first few weeks into that first semester, I was like, man, like the reading load is so heavy and there's just like a lot going on and it's really hard to keep up with it. And I hadn't been a student in whatever, seven, eight years by this point. Um, you know, I had taken some night classes at a community college, but that was like, you know, just different. Whereas, you know, now I'm like a full-time student and there's so much to keep up with. And, you know, like by this point I had, I had some familiarity with like graduation rates. Like I knew basically no one ever failed, but you know, I still wanted to like give it my best effort. And, you know, I, I realized like most people actually didn't do all of the readings because it's literally physically impossible. You know, mm-hmm. like some of these professors would assign like, you know, like it's just impossible to read whatever, like 5,000 pages in a week or whatever. Like, and, and, and so it was like, you know, you, you learn to sort of skim, you learn how to do sort of strategic reading to get the gist of certain things and how to, you know, sort of approach problem sets as a group. And some people can work on some and some people can work on others and you can just sort of communicate how you got your answers. And there are just sort of different ways to um, understand how to do the assignments. And I noticed like a lot of these kids who went to places like Exeter or whatever, like they just they knew, they knew how to approach these assignments. They knew how to approach the classes in a way that I didn't. And so, you know, there there were periods where I'm like, 
you know, I felt like, am I, am I actually sort of academically and intellectually equipped to be at a place like this? And then gradually I learned like, no, it was just because you, you know, you didn't go to the greatest of public schools, but then you also weren't a good student. You had so many bad habits. I was just kind of academically rusty. And, you know, it's funny, like the longer I went on, like kind of the better my grades got. And once I sort of got the hang of how to handle the classes, it was fine. But that first semester, that first year was pretty difficult. Um, but then, you know, even thing, yeah. So, so then, yeah, with the, with the Christakis thing, I would speak to students about, you know, what the issue was. This was sort of the, the early days of what would later become whatever, like identity politics, social justice, whatever the wokeness or something, you know, 2015, it still hadn't quite become as pervasive, but Yale was like one of the elite universities where the whole movement was born. And I saw it and it just made no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, I read and reread Erica Christakis's email defending freedom of expression and basically telling students you can wear whatever whatever Halloween costume you want. And then suddenly all the students are, you know, harassing and, sh- and screaming at her husband saying like, you know, you're trying to hurt us. You're humiliating us. You're making us feel unsafe. You know, this isn't a safe place. I'm in danger. And I'm like, you know, you're all like the children of millionaires at one of the richest universities in the world. And you're all in like this gated community. I mean, like, you know, Yale itself is like this idyllic bubble housed within a place that's actually not dangerous or that that isn't safe. Rather, mm-hmm. it is dangerous. New Haven, New Haven, Connecticut is actually pretty, pretty rough. Um, I so I, I didn't live on campus. I lived downtown in New Haven. Uh, and the apartment itself was like, you know, like a relatively decent area, but I did have to walk through some sketchy parts of town to get there. Uh, like the New Haven green where you'll see people like shooting heroin needles in broad daylight and people who are clearly mentally unwell and homeless and whatever. And so like, I'd go from a place where I would see whatever. Yeah. Again, like the, the children of millionaires and like, you know, these are, this is the future ruling class. Uh, talking about how unsafe they felt. And then I'd walk through the New Haven Green and see people who were actually impoverished. And then I would think about the people that I grew up with, you know, on my way back to my apartment and think like just this juxtaposition, it made no sense to me. And when people would try to explain whatever, like identity politics and marginalized groups and so forth, like, you know, in some ways I didn't necessarily disagree with it, but I thought like, <laughs> if you're going to a place like Yale, like you're not, you're not really marginalized. Like it doesn't matter. Like I'm not, you know, like I can, mm-hmm. I can talk about my background, whatever, but like I am well in like the top 1% of people who, you know, where I came from and where I am, like I would feel ashamed to talk about how marginalized I am and how oppressed I am and so forth, despite my fortunate outcome, because I know what people who grew up like the way that I did, how they end up usually like what the, what the usual outcome is. And so it was just weird to see like people who superficially may have resembled um, historically mistreated groups or, you know, like if you're, you know, a young female student at Yale and you talk about how much misogyny is affecting you, I just, I just can't really take it that seriously. Um, because you're whatever, you have an internship at Goldman Sachs and you're going to be attending Harvard law school in three years. I'm like, are you really, you know, so that was just very, it felt very unserious to me. And then that was where the sort of early, uh, early thoughts had been sparked in my mind about the luxury beliefs idea of interacting with people. And they would say things that seemingly were so at odds with beliefs that I held or the people I grew up around held, even if, you know, I didn't live up to them necessarily, but we still had these ideals about like monogamy and marriage and the two parent family and 
you know, we still thought of them as ideals growing up, even if, you know, we didn't really see much of it around us. It did seem like something that was probably good. Um, something that maybe we'd wished that we had, but then I would talk to these students at Yale and they would say, Oh, monogamy is outdated or marriage is this kind of, you know, it's rooted in these patriarchal assumptions and we need to evolve beyond it. I did have this conversation with one, one uh, young woman at Yale who, you know, she basically said like, yeah, we should, we should evolve past it. And then I asked her how she grew up and unsurprisingly she had been raised by both of her birth parents. And then I asked her, how do you, plan to have, you know, how do you, what kind of family do you plan to form later? And she said, you know, I'll probably get married. I'll probably have a husband, you know, kind of do the same thing that I, you know, I'm familiar with, but you know, these are just my personal choices. That doesn't mean that everyone should do it. And I thought like, okay, so you benefited from this institution. Um, you know, you had stable family life. You had a mom and a dad who took care of you and made sure you got into a place like Yale and you're planning on bestowing the same advantages to your own kids, but your official public position is that this is an outdated thing and no one should do this. It just seems so sort of deceitful and duplicitous to me. And I saw this with other things too, um, you know, like, like, like substance use or, um, you know, there, there are other examples too. I think like even, even like, like screen time and technology use and, you know, body positivity, you know, I would hear students talk about, you know, fat shaming and body positivity, but they would like, you know, they were like very careful with their diets. They would play tennis every day. Like they were just sort of super, you know, conscientious and concerned with how they looked. But that, you know, if anyone ever said anything about, you know, being healthy or sort of uh, tackling the obesity problem in the US, they would say like, you know, you're healthy at any size or whatever. It just, you know, I knew that they wouldn't accept that for themselves or for their own children or for their own loved ones, but they would hold everyone else to a much lower standard. And I think like this attitude of, you know, for better or worse, if you're in that position, if you're a member of the ruling class, the cultural elite, if you are just sort of in that prominent position economically or culturally or socially, I mean, you wield outsized influence on how the culture goes. And so collectively, if we all sort of look around and see, you know, TV shows on Netflix or op-ed columnists or radio show hosts, just sort of in the aggregate, all of the sort of media around us, all of the people around us, people who our culture deems as relevant and important voices to listen to. And all of them are saying like, hey, healthy at any size, you know, instead of like, hey, it's a good idea to sort of monitor your weight and your health and take care of yourself. You know, gradually people are going to sort of follow into one pattern or the other based on the messages that they're hearing over and over from you know, quote unquote, important people. And so, yeah, I just um, thought of that as, you know, later, later I came up with the right term for it, which was a luxury belief, ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on the lower classes. And so these beliefs, um, you know, people will, you know, there was the finger snapping thing where students would snap their fingers if they agreed with what the other students were saying. And so they would say, whatever, like marriage is outdated. And then people around there would snap their fingers and they would feel good about themselves. Um, but in the aggregate, you know, that, that belief, uh, among people, uh, who are in culturally influential positions has had effects on everyone else. You know, there was one, um, one example of this, uh, a friend of mine, I don't know if I put this, this part in the book, but a friend of mine, he, um, he told me that, when he set his dating app radius to just around the campus, um, 
which is you know, like a one mile radius or whatever. He said that most of the women, you know, the, and, and I, he was he, at this point, I think he was uh, either a grad student or undergrad. He was, you know, early twenties. And he said, you know, most of the women around him would have in their bios. I think, I don't remember what half this was, but it was, you know, a lot of them would say like, you know, poly or, you know, keeping a casual or nothing serious or just kind of having fun and seeing what's out there. Just this sort of relaxed, casual attitude to relationships. Um, or, or just, you know, like the poly thing of just like, you know, non-monogamous, whatever. And then he said when he extended the radius to the dating app to encompass the rest of the town and its outskirts, which was a more sort of blue collar, low income area, same age category of women, whatever it was, 18 or 19 to 24 or something. Um, about half of the women were single moms. Uh, and so, you know, this is a sort of a, a contrast between what, extreme sexual freedom looks like for one class of women versus the other. If you go to an expensive university being poly or, you know, casual or whatever, it just means having fun and having a good time. But for women who are not in that situation, who are in a more sort of more low income, more impoverished, dysfunctional environment, often you just get, you know, you, you have sex with some guy and then you end up having to take care of the resulting kid. Um, and the kid goes on to have a difficult life. So yeah, it just looks, uh, just looks very different. And it would be nice if we thought more about this, that maybe you yourself as a highly educated, you know, intelligent, you know, high impulse control, careful person, uh, with access to resources and cultural capital and so on, you yourself may be able to, you know, have a lot of different sexual partners and try different substances and sort of partake in things that may be fun and, you know, technically maybe isn't hurting anyone in the short term. But in the long run, if people who are less fortunate than you partake in the same behaviors, it will cause their life to spiral out of control. Um, I have a line in the book somewhere that, you know, if you're if you're a student at Yale, you can probably snort some cocaine on the weekends and all, all likelihood your life will be just fine. But a lot of the guys I grew up with, I mean, if you know, they, they would take that first hit of meth to self-destruction, I mean, it would just lead them on a horrible path. And so, yeah, just sort of indulging in all of your appetites. Um, I don't think it should necessarily be promoted. I'm not saying, you know, it should be outlawed or that it, we should lock everyone up for doing anything. You know, I'm just saying that if you're a fortunate in a fortunate position and you can partake in them, that doesn't necessarily mean you should broadcast it and say, this is the greatest thing and everyone should do it. Or if you're getting married and you have thoughts about it, um, you sh even if, even if you're not promoting marriage, it would be nice if you're getting married to at least not denigrate it for everyone else. Yeah. <clears throat> I remember when I came across that idea and I know you've spoken widely about luxury beliefs in your public appearances and it, it's, it's one of those ideas that is just very difficult to unsee once you have glimpsed it, in my opinion, uh, in my own experience. And, um, yeah, I know it's getting late where you are. And, um, I, I before I have a final closing question for you, I, I would love to just say how great I think the book is. I think a lot of people are going to uh, benefit enormously from it. I thought I mentioned this earlier that, it must have taken a lot of courage to write, especially some of these passages that are are in there. And um, I know I will. Uh, many of those ideas and passages will will stay with me, and I know I will speak for a lot of people who will eventually read your book that I think will benefit from it. So I just wanted to convey that to you and um, 
you know, congratulate you on completing it and, and congratulate you on the, the courage it must have taken to, to write, especially some of those more difficult passages. You know, I, I alluded to this earlier and I thought maybe this would be a, a good place to end was, uh, you know, I think a lot of great art and great work in life is done out of creating something that one wished they would have had at an earlier phase in their own life. And I wonder if that at all resonates with with you, uh, with, with Mm. this book. And I wanted to ask you for, if there are kids that come across this or even teenagers that are, you know, learn about your story over the coming years and stumble upon this interview or other conversations that you have about this forthcoming book, what would be some parting messages that you might have for them? You've already spoken about some of them. You write about this in the book. Uh, in some detail, but I wanted to maybe close the conversation with asking you that specifically. Yeah. So messages for, for kids. I mean, you know, it's fine. I, you know, I, I did write the book to be accessible. You know, it's not a, I don't think it's a, maybe, maybe in some ways it's emotionally difficult to read, but in terms of just the prose itself, I, I wrote it to be sort of accessible and anyone can sort of pick it up and go through it and understand it right away. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all these these uh, reports now. More and more people aren't reading, and mm. everyone's on TikTok. And I'm like, you know, maybe people will sort of chop up clips from this this podcast mm. and put it up on TikTok. Um, but uh, parting messages for for kids. I mean, I I think no, there are a couple of things. One would be everything you're feeling when you're young is so much more intense and and amplified i mean this is one of the things that i i noticed when i was going through my book was uh trying to recapture the feelings and everything just feels like you know when you're angry you're just extremely angry and when you're sad you feel so down and it's difficult because you don't have a lot of experience with your emotions and you think that that's always how it's going to be like when you're sad you're like oh i'm sad and this is just how it is now and you have you don't necessarily have the maturity and awareness to say oh i'm sad but like i've been sad before and i can sort of give it enough time and the emotions will sort of dissipate and you'll sort of return to baseline and you know you sort of have that that rhythm but when you're young it just feels like everything is is either super great or the end of the world and to just sort of understand that you know don't don't sort of over don't don't assign too much value to whatever emotion you're feeling in the moment and try to think more about the future it's hard though i mean i i think especially when there's not a lot of good role models around you but one thing that i did when i was a kid is uh and this was you know pre-youtube pre tiktok or whatever was you know i did sort of read memoirs i would Mm -hmm. watch movies or whatever and i would try to find good behaviors or patterns or sort of role models in these spaces of people that I want that I admired and wanted to be more like. And I think one one benefit, I mean, you know, I know there's a lot of discussion right now about some of the negative effects of social media, but one of the positive effects is you can follow influencers and people who I think have been uh, you know, great um sort of advisors and people who can supply really useful guidance uh to young people um you know the people like jordan peterson or jocko willink or david goggins you know i'm speaking more on the sort of male side here but i'm sure there's plenty of examples and i know a lot of women listen to those guys too um that you know young people can sort of seek out these role models and 
So try to uh, try to avoid too much, at least some of the more sort of toxic uh, viral influencers who supply maybe less, you know, less beneficial advice. Maybe it's funny and maybe it's entertaining, but will it actually help you in the long run? And also think about who you want to be. You know, I'd mentioned before when I was a kid working for minimum wage, you know, and I saw the guys around me, you know, I thought, is this who I wanted to be? And the answer was no. And so look around you and see, well, who do you want to be more like? Who do you want to be less like? You know, it's one thing to sort of get to to receive these abstract uh, mm. pieces of advice. Do this. Don't do that. This is a good thing. This is a bad thing. But it's much more concrete when you see people behaving in a certain way that you admire or behave in a certain way that you yourself would disapprove of or wouldn't want to see yourself or your loved ones doing and try to draw yourself closer to the people that you admire and the people who are doing good things and you know, try to figure out why you like it so much. And you know, those, those, those specific behaviors and try to build relationships with people who are doing things that, that uh, you find, you know, desirable and honorable and, and so on. Yeah. I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you so much, Rob. This was, uh, as I said, when I first kicked this off, it was a real honor to do this. And um, congratulations on the book. We're all going to benefit from you making it out of that fire and um, creating all the great stuff you're just beginning to do. So congrats, man. Hey, thanks, Dan. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 